0: Welcome and thank you for joining us for another episode of KPMG's Inside International Tax, a podcast devoted to recent developments, observations, and trends related to U.S. international tax. I'm your host, Gary Scanlon, a principal in KPMG's WNT International Tax Practice. It's been a few weeks since we've done an episode of this podcast. I've used this time for mostly self-growth, by which I mean I've spent every waking non-football watching hour studying financial statement accounting, the foundation upon which the globe rules of Pillar 2, as well as the newly enacted Corporate Alternative Minimum Tax, or HAMPTI, are built. The last we spoke extensively about the globe rules in an episode released in June titled A Tough Pillar to Swallow. Computing Globe ETR for U.S. multinationals. We had promised to dedicate an episode to the m implications of Pillar 2. Well, this is that episode. For this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Kevin Brogan, a principal in KPMG's WNT International Tax Practice, and a frequent guest speaker on this podcast, particularly with respect to Pillar 2. Steve Massett, a principal in KPMG's WNT M&A practice, and another returning guest to the podcast, and David Darug, a managing director in WNT's international tax practice, who is joining us here for the first time. David, welcome to the podcast, and Steve and Kevin, welcome back. Thanks, Gary. Thanks, Gary. Thank you, Gary. In June, when we last spoke about the Globe Rules, we had just received news that the EU member states had been unable to secure an agreement on an EU directive that would implement Pillar 2 by reason of the opposition from Hungary. There have been some important recent developments. First, while the EU has still not secured Hungary's support, Earlier this month, five European nations – Germany, France, Italy, Spain, and the Netherlands – issued a joint statement expressing an intention to move forward with the implementation of Pillar 2, even if a unanimous agreement was not secured on the EU Directive. Meanwhile, the UK, South Korea, and Switzerland have each published draft legislation with an intention to implement the globe rules in their respective countries. While the UK hasn't announced any date for the implementation of the under-tax profits rule, or UTPR, the income inclusion rule, or IAR, is expected to apply for tax years beginning after December 31st, 2023. South Korea and Switzerland, on the other hand, intend for their IARs, as well as UTPRs, to become effective in 2024 switzerland also intends to adopt a so-called qualified domestic minimum top-up tax regime or qdmtt effective at the same time obviously these dates could change but it appears now to be less a question of if but when pillar 2 will be widely adopted once a handful of major headquarter nations adopt an IAR or a utpr Nations like Germany, UK, South Korea, and Switzerland, other nations will be forced to adopt their own globe rules to protect their own tax bases and share in the global tax lucre. This despite the fact that the US by failing to reform guilty, has not lived up to its obligations under the global agreement. On that point, it should be noted that just because the US does not adopt the globe rules does not in any way shield U.S. multinationals from the application of them. On the contrary, as we've discussed at length in earlier episodes of this podcast, a U.S. parent's domestic income could be subject to the UTPR of other countries, in addition to the newly enacted CAMT. and its CFCs' income could be subject to the IAR, UTPR, or QDMTTS of other countries. In addition to the campy and guilty, indeed, a U.S. multinational is potentially subject to the maximum amount of minimum taxes. But while no one is going to pay a dollar, or more accurately, a euro, pound or one of tax under the globe rules for at least another couple of years, m and transactions that occur today can impact the amount of globe taxes paid in that not so distant future. In this episode, we will outline some of the M&A related rules in GLOBE, but with a focus on what multinationals that are potentially in scope of the GLOBE rules in the future should consider when engaging in M&A transactions today. Steve, let's start with you. What are the consequences of a simple taxable stock acquisition under GLOBE? Let's assume the U.S. acquires a foreign target and doesn't make a 338g election
1: thanks gary let's start with the consequences to the seller m e group which are not relevant to sales that occurred before the effective date of of pillar two sellers globe income or loss for a fiscal year is its financial accounting net income or loss for such year as adjusted by the globe rules as relevant to the sale Globe income or loss does not include gain or loss from the disposition of an ownership interest in an entity unless the interest is a portfolio shareholding, so-called excluded equity gain or loss. Portfolio shareholding is generally ownership interests in an entity that are held by an MNE group and that represent less than 10% of the vote or value of the entity. Here, seller sells all the shares in foreign target and thus the sale is not with respect to a portfolio shareholding. Accordingly, seller's gain or loss from the sale is excluded equity gain or loss and is not taken into account by seller in computing its globe income or loss for the fiscal year of the sale. Further, because seller's gain or loss from the sale is not taken into account for globe purposes, any taxes imposed on seller with respect to the sale would similarly be ignored for globe purposes. Thus, the taxes would not be considered cover taxes and would not enter into the globe ETR computation. The Globe treatment of gain or losses from and taxes with respect to stock sales reflects the fact that many inclusive framework jurisdictions have participation systems that do not tax stock sales. To level the playing field, Globe generally disregards the effects of stock sales so entities subject to participation exemption systems do not have artificially low ETRs in fiscal years of stock dispositions. Of course, the U.S. doesn't exempt stock sales from tax. Thus, if seller were a domestic entity, its globe ETR would not reflect the fact that it likely paid taxes on the sale of foreign target at a rate that was greater than the globe minimum rate. So what does this mean? Well, not a whole lot if the seller m group has a U.S. ETR that is otherwise greater than 15%. However, if the seller m group has a U.S. ETR less than 15%, The group cannot use the taxes paid on the sale of the foreign target to offset its low tax U.S. income. Now let's switch to the consequences to the buyer MNE group, which are relevant for all sales, even those that occur before the Globe rules are effective. So in general, foreign target joins the buyer MNE group with a basis in its assets for Globe purposes equal to the historical carrying value of its assets for book purposes. In this regard, it is important to note that the globe basis of foreign targets assets generally are not increased to reflect buyer's purchase accounting and pushdown adjustments. This aspect of the globe rules is key because once globe is effective, the prohibition on purchase accounting and pushdown adjustments will apply to all constituent entities regardless of when the entities were acquired. Thus, current book basis attributable to historical purchase accounting and pushdown adjustments will generally be ignored for globe purposes. There's one exception to this general rule, specifically foreign target can determine the global basis of its assets using purchase accounting and push down adjustments. If the sale occurred before December 1, 2021, the financial accounting standard of the buyer m group's ultimate parent entity allows for push down adjustments to be made in foreign targets, assets and liabilities in its separate accounts. And the buyer m group does not have sufficient records to determine its financial accounting income or loss with reasonable accuracy, based on the unadjusted carrying values of foreign target's assets and liabilities. Note, however, if this exception applies, any DTAs or DTLs arising from the purchase accounting must also be taken into account.
0: Steve, does your answer change if the U.S. acquirer does make a 338G election for the foreign target?
1: Since the Section 338G election is only a U.S. tax fiction and does not change the tax treatment of the sale in foreign targets jurisdiction, Buyer's Section 338G election is largely irrelevant for globe purposes. It is worth noting that U.S. taxes paid by a U.S. seller with respect to the deemed sale of foreign targets assets that results from the election, um, just like the U.S. taxes paid on capital gain with respect to foreign target, are not taken into account for globe purposes. Now, with this said, assuming foreign target is a CFC after the transaction, buyer section 338-G election would reduce foreign target's tested income and or subpart F income in future years and thus reduce the taxes paid by foreign target's U.S. shareholders under the U.S. CFC rules. But this would just mean that more taxes would be imposed on foreign target's income under the Globe rules.
0: So, in short, some of the benefits of the 338-G election for purposes of guilty could be clawed back under under Pillar 2 regime. There are provisions in the model rules that would treat stock acquisitions as asset
1: acquisitions. Do, do none of these rules apply here? Unfortunately, no. As we'll discuss in a couple minutes, these provisions only apply where there is a local country asset level transaction for the target. Here the Section 338G election results in an asset level transaction for U.S. tax purposes does not affect the treatment of the sale in foreign targets jurisdiction
0: so we'll talk more about these deemed asset transactions shortly but first just to level set if u.s actually acquired assets from the foreign target what are the results
1: from the seller ME groups perspective gain or loss on the sale and the associated taxes uh, will be taken into account if the sale occurs after globe is effective and from the buyer at group, group's perspective, buyer would take a fair market value basis in the acquired assets for GLOBE purposes, irrespective of whether the sale is completed before or after GLOBE is effective. So there are
0: very different results whether a transaction is treated as an asset acquisition or a stock acquisition for GLOBE. So let's talk more about the deemed asset transaction provisions we've already referred to. Steve, there are two exceptions one is a per se exception and one is elective let's start with the per se one in article 6.2.2
1: 2. sure article 6.2.2 2 is an exception that treats the transfer of a controlling interest in an entity as a transfer of the entity's assets and liabilities now, this exception applies if if two conditions are met first the target entity's jurisdiction treats the transfer in the same or similar manner as a transfer of assets and liabilities. Second, the target entity's jurisdiction taxes seller on targets inside asset gain. When this exception applies, the seller is treated as selling the ownership interest in the target entity with any resulting gain or loss treated as excluded equity gain or loss. And the target entity is treated as selling its assets and liabilities to the buyer. If the transaction is deemed to be an asset sale for globe purposes, it is treated as an actual asset sale. Thus, if the transaction occurs after the globe effective date, any gain or loss and covered taxes from the transaction are taken into account by the seller M&E group. The buyer M&E group would take a fair value basis in the acquired assets for global purposes, irrespective of when the sale occurs.
0: So what transactions are described in this article 6.2.2?
1: The article has some ambiguity in it, but I think it's safe to say that sales of U.S. disregarded entities are subject to this exception. And, you know, it may be the case that a Section 338 H10 election, which is made with respect to U.S. companies, would be described within this article. Now, I think it is pretty clear that the article would not apply to the sale of a foreign disregarded entity and assume because that sale is treated as a stock sale for the foreign disregarded entities um, local country tax purposes
0: similarly it doesn't apply to the sale of a foreign target treated as a corporation for U.S. purposes for which we make a 338g election for the same reason it's not treated as a taxable asset sale for the local country perspective even if it is from a U.S. perspective so there's also a deemed asset sale provision in article 6.3.4, and I apologize to listeners to referring to the article numbers, but unfortunately there's no snappy name yet. But this article 6.3.4 uh, deemed asset provision is elective. Steve, can you explain how this provision works?
1: Yes. This exception applies if a member of an MNE group is required or permitted to adjust the basis of its assets or liabilities to fair value under the tax law of the jurisdiction in which it's located. The filing member for the MNE group makes the election uh, to apply the exception. So if this exception is elected, the entity includes in its globe income or loss the book built-in gain or loss of each of its assets and liabilities. On a go-forward basis, the entity determines its globe, income, or loss using the fair value of its assets and liabilities. The entity includes the gain or loss that results from the election either in the fiscal year of the transaction or pro rata over a five-year period that starts with the fiscal year of the transaction.
0: And what types of transactions are contemplated in Article 6.3.4?
1: Yeah, it appears that once the globe rules are effective, this exception will apply to Section 338G and H10 elections with respect to the acquisition of stock in U.S. companies it may also apply to Section 754 elections with respect to the acquisition of interest in U.S. partnerships.
0: Okay, let's assume one of these deemed asset transaction provisions apply. For instance, USP purchases a USDRE from an unrelated person, and under usp is treated as purchasing assets so immediately after the acquisition usp would have a globe basis equal to its u.s tax basis that seems like a a good answer but on a go forward basis steve why might this acquisition still expose us to potential top-up tax
1: the answer to this question lies in the calculation of the globe etr the numerator of the GLOBE ETR fraction is adjusted covered taxes, which is an entity's current and deferred tax expense for book purposes as adjusted by the GLOBE rules. For example, for GLOBE purposes, an entity's deferred tax expense does not include amounts that relate to unclaimed accruals. Now, an unclaimed accrual is any increase to a DTL recorded for book purposes that is not expected to be repaid within the subsequent five-year period and for which an election has been made to exclude from the entity's total deferred tax amount. Also under the DTL recapture rule in Article 4.4.4, 4. 4. 4, a DTL that is taken into account for GLOBE purposes and not repaid within the subsequent five-year period is recaptured. The DTL recapture rule does not apply to certain DTLs, including depreciation for tangible assets, but it does apply to amortization for intangible assets. Thus, unless accepted from the DTL recapture rules, DTLs that are not paid within the five-year timeframe are disregarded for GLOBE purposes, and thus adjusted cover taxes do not reflect the amounts of such DTLs. Importantly, this means that the GLOBE ETR does not reflect DTLs that relate to amortization for goodwill and other long-lived intangible property because absent an impairment. Or disposition of the business, these DTLs will not be expected to reverse within five years. For example, the recapture of a DTL in year five could create a top-up tax in that year. Alternatively, an election to not recognize the DTL for global purposes and to treat such DTL as an unacclaimed accrual could then create top-up tax in years one through four.
0: So importantly,
1: and we're not gonna talk
0: about the CAMT here, and hopefully in a future episode, we will a similar issue can come up in CAMT as well, due to the differences between how tax and book recover basis with respect to goodwill. So to be clear, these consequences related to goodwill and long-lived IP as nothing to do with the deemed asset transaction. Steve, this this is still an issue for actual asset acquisitions as well, correct?
1: That's correct, Gary. The global rules dealing with deferred tax accounting apply equally to deemed asset acquisitions and actual asset acquisitions.
0: Kevin, let's go to you and talk a little bit more about the elective deemed asset transaction rule. Steve noted earlier that article 6.3.4 seems to contemplate acquisitions of U.S. target corporations for which a 338 or G or H10 election is made, as well as acquisitions of partnership interests for which a 754 election has been made. The model rules are just that, model rules to be adopted by countries into their local law. There are no GLOBE rules currently in effect. So if a U.S. acquirer purchase a partnership interest today, and for U.S. tax purposes, the assets of the partnership are stepped up for the benefit of the U.S. acquirer by reason of a 754 election, can the U.S. acquirer make the election under Article 6.3.4 today to obtain globe basis? And if not, do you expect that the OECD will permit such election in the future?
2: Thanks, Gary. So, I think a a point you made in asking your question was an important point, namely that the rules are kind of still evolving, and we'll probably see a lot more guidance as guidance is released and the implementation framework comes out. So, I'm going to base my answer strictly under the the literal reading of the model rules as they are written today. In my view, as the rules are written today, no election under Article 6.3.4 can be made where a entity acquires a partnership in a Section 754 election is made or acquires a U.S. target in a 338 election is made. And that is because the precondition for getting the basis step up at the acquiring entity is that an election is made by a filing constituent entity in the year the basis adjustment occurs. And one of the prerequisites for getting that basis step up is that the constituent entity includes in its globe income gain or loss on those assets. So it's sort of a, they make you pay for the basis step up by making sure you include your Globe income in the year the event occurs. So obviously if this transaction occurs in a year before Globe is effective, there's no filing constituent entity who could make that election. So as written, I don't think the rules provide for any election under 6.3.4 for an acquisition or triggering event that occurs pre-effective date. Now, I'm hopeful that we will see such an election be permitted in future guidance where there's an acquisition in the transition period. Because as you know, the consequences of not being able to make an election for a pre-effective date acquisition could be far-reaching where basis continues to be depreciated for tax purposes after the effective date. But it's not clear what such an election would look like. For example, would would taxpayers be required to construct some sort of balance sheet where they'd show what the fair value basis would have been at the time the triggering event occurred, and then adjust it downward for maybe for any intervening events such as depreciation or amortization or other such things, just how complicated and detailed that construction would have to be. Thanks, Kevin.
0: Another provision that taxpayers should be very much aware of today is the transition rule. Kevin, what what is the transition rule?
2: So the transition rule is a rule that is contained in article nine point one point three. And what seems to be behind it is that if a taxpayer engaged in an intercompany sale of assets other than inventory, inventory is accepted because intercompany transfers of inventory are considered routine. but if it if a taxpayer takes part in an intercompany sale of other assets, after November 30th, 2021, and prior to the effective date of the GLOBE rules, it almost, without saying so, deems an impermissible purpose where the group is trying to step up the basis in an asset so that they'll get an increased deferred tax asset for future amortization for the basis step up that occurs under the local tax jurisdiction or such that the gain or loss is outside of the GLOBE system. So what Article 9.1.3 does is says, if you partake in an intercompany transfer of non-inventory property after November 30th, 2021, then the acquiring entity has to take a carryover basis. And even though you likely get stepped up tax basis in the acquiring entity's jurisdiction, you cannot create a deferred tax asset equal to the difference between that stepped up local basis and the carryover globe basis. And that's important because that can have the effect of making an acquiring entity's ETR calculation look artificially low. And here's why. Well, you'd expect the acquiring entity to get stepped up basis, meaning it would have increased amortization deductions on its tax return. So what that's going to lead to is a lower current tax expense. Now the GLOBE base, since you don't get to step up your basis for GLOBE purposes, isn't going to reflect any amortization for the stepped-up basis in the assets. And because we're also told that you can't create a deferred tax asset based on the carryover GLOBE basis and the local tax basis, your ETR calculation essentially just looks like the reduced current tax expense over the globe income that is not reduced by the amortization. So driving down your ETR could be potentially well below the statutory rate and, and subject you to a lot of top-up tax.
0: I think that's an important point, and it's, and it's important to highlight the fact that it is a bright-line rule. It's not principal purpose-based. It just, it just applies to every transaction between constituent entities involving Assets other than inventory Pat, uh, that occur after November thirtieth, twenty twenty one. So, so Kevin, how might the transition rule affect M and A today, and and also post merger integration?
2: Well, I think the first thing that the transition rule would tra- drive you towards is maybe trying to acquire assets in an asset sale rather than a stock sale and I think historically you see a lot of M&A transactions occur in the form of stock acquisitions because it is much easier than having to transfer and retitle assets but if you can affect an asset sale then the local tax consequences more align with the globe consequences and what I mean by that is your local tax basis will generally equal purchase price and your globe basis will generally equal purchase price, which is fair value, such that the current tax expense in the numerator of your ETR calculation will be based on a tax base that is more likely to align closely with your globe base. If you're not able to structure into an asset sale because it is just commercially impractical as is so often the case, the next thing to think about is If you planned on integrating some of the operations of the target with existing companies in your structure, so typically typical post-merger or post-acquisition integrations, it might cause you to rethink when you do so. That is, it might cause you to rethink doing so immediately after the sale and instead wait until the globe rules are effective. But because of all the different accounting standards out there, it's really dependent and you really have to model that out. And also keep in mind any future guidance we get.
0: One thing I would point out is the transition rule can apply not only to transactions you have engaged in in your U.S. multinational group, but understand it could apply to transactions engaged in between members of a different group if you acquire that different group. So this could end up being a diligence exercise as you acquire uh, a a target, you may have to look at their pre-merger transactions, particularly in anticipation of the acquisition, determine whether the transition rule could apply. So let's move on and talk about the problem with Pope's. Uh, So far, we've been discussing how to calculate globe income and adjusted covered taxes and how M&A deals happening today can impact that computation tomorrow. But there's another pitfall that some folks have woken up to related to so-called partially owned parent entities or popes. David,
3: can you explain what this issue is? Yes, Gary. We're shifting gears here to look more at how the charging provisions of the Globe Model Rules apply in the context of what you've called popes, which are partially owned parent entities. And so as defined in the model rules, a pope is a company that's included in the consolidated financials of the m and group as a constituent entity, but an unrelated person or persons owns 20% or more of that company. So, in other words, more than 20% of the pope's ownerships are held outside of the group by non-group members. In addition, the model rules confirm that a pope cannot be an ultimate parent entity, a UPE, which we'll describe in a few minutes will be important. So, again, we're looking at how the charging rules could apply and why is this relevant. In general, the income inclusion rule, or IIR, that we've been talking about is applied at the top-down approach. So, moving from the top of the structure down through the the chain of the structure. That is, the country of the ultimate pair entity of a group would generally have first dibs, on applying its IIR to lower tier constituent entities with that right only dropping down to intermediate holding companies if for example the UPE's country incorporation failed to adopt an IIR however in the context of popes the model rules provide an exception in this case a pope is required to apply its IIR first notwithstanding that as we've discussed by definition a pope can't be a UPE So, if the pope's country has not adopted an IIR, then the UPE must apply its IIR, with the UPE only having to take into account its allocable share of the pope's top-up tax. The theory behind this dropping-down method for purposes of determining where the top-up tax should be collected is that where there is a pope in the system and that pope is located in a country that does have a qualifying IIR, the model rules effectively ensure that the other owners of the pope bear their proportionate share of any top-up tax rather than imposing this cost on the UPE. Where this gets a little bit more interesting and complicated is where you have a situation where neither the country of the pope nor the UPE has adopted an IIR. In that case, the model rules tell us that the entire amount of the pope's top-up tax is potentially taken into account under the UTPR. As a result, a constituent entity within the M&E group may collect top-up tax under the UTPR and the entire amount of low-taxed income of a low-taxed constituent entity in the M&E group, including the portion attributable to the minority investors in the pope. This is not merely an academic inquiry. It really could have very practical and economic implications going forward for certain M&E groups. Take, for example, if the U.S. doesn't adopt a qualifying IIR U.S. parented EME groups with a pope in the structure, that is a resident in a jurisdiction that likewise hasn't adopted a qualifying IIR, will need to be mindful of and monitor the potential consequences of these rules, absent any further changes to them as we go forward.
0: Thanks. This issue can pop up in in JV structures where where one of the owners uh, consolidates the the JV because it has. Uh, control, consolidates for financial accounting purposes. And so it can come up uh, quite frequently. W- when it does come up, David, how might taxpayers, particularly U.S. taxpayers, address this issue?
3: That's a great question, Gary. So since it seems that the U.S. likely won't have a qualified IIR in the very near future, for newly formed folks the U.S. parented m group might consider forming it in a jurisdiction that has or will adopt the Globe rules going forward. And where the taxpayer just doesn't have this flexibility for various commercial reasons, um, they may try to enter into an agreement with the other owners of the pope to share the tax expense um, as part of the transaction structuring. However, for old and cold popes, I think it's going to be a bit more challenging because it may mean going back to the other investors potentially renegotiating certain aspects of the deal and that itself is likely to present a whole host of other challenges. Thanks, David, and thanks, Kevin and Steve. I think
0: we'll end this discussion here. In the coming weeks, hopefully we can return to the topic of M&A, but in the context of Camp T, which, as I mentioned earlier, also implicates financial statement and Indeed, the KMT concerns might even be more pressing given its imminent effective date, January 1st for calendar year taxpayers that are in scope. And unlike the GLOBE rules, which have certain provisions specifically applicable to non-recognition transactions, so-called GLOBE reorganizations, which we didn't have time to discuss today, KMT has no specific provisions applicable to non-recognition transactions, but rather merely grants Treasury and the IRS the authority to write appropriate rules to address such transactions. So there's a lot of uncertainty here that we'd like to explore further. So please stay tuned for future episodes of KPMG's Inside International Tax. To stay up to speed on Globe, CampT, and other developments in U.S. international tax. Until our next episode, take care.